And a very good morning to you. We are live from London today with Monaco on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, we'll be checking in with our editorial director, Tyler Brule, soaking up a little bit of sunshine in the Greek capital of Athens. I'll be joined in the studio by my panellists, Terry Stiasny and Charles Hecker, here to examine, among other things, a pretty catastrophic week in British politics. And we'll have an update from Istanbul. And Andrew Muller will be here to bring us a catch-up of the news. And clinging even more grimly to the subject of competitions decided by voting for your choice from a field of gaudily plumed shriekers, we learned of a significant improvement to next year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's going to be shorter. It's the 23rd of October 2022, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a very good morning to you if you have just tuned in. Sitting around the table, I have Charles Hecker and Terry Stiesny. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good and morning. on the line from Athens this morning, our editorial director, uh, Tyler Brule. Calimera, Tyler. Calimera to you, Emma. Good morning. How's it going? How's, t- tell us that you have sunshine bathing, your, bathing the top of your head this morning, because we don't have that in Absolutely. London. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a good Austrian hat on my head, but it is... A cloudless day. It's going to be 26, at least south of Athens, just down in the Vula Vuliameni district. And it's gorgeous if you want to chase a little bit of end of summer sun. It's funny because I happened to be in Athens on the day that the beaches opened for the first time in April. And I was thinking ahead to this moment when things were winding down at the end of the summer. And I was wondering what kind of summer that the Greeks would have. Can you tell us? Well, I think they've had a very good summer. And you know, as uh, our listeners and readers will know, we were dipping in and out of Greece and Athens in general because, of course, we had our Quality of Life conference uh, last year, almost about this time. And we sort of looked back on it and sort of wondering, how did we even pull it off back then? And there was this sort of sense of caution and hesitation. Of course, this was last September. And you still feel it now in Greece that it has the hangover of masks and a lot of hand sanitizers and from my column this morning, they're still caught in QR code land here, unfortunately. But there is a lot of buzz, and you see that construction is really sort of bouncing back, and there is just so much more life south of the city uh, as opposed, of course, across the last two years. It's amazing. Okay, tell us about QR codes. Can I let you into a secret? I always pretend that my phone's given up. Oh, always. I always pretend. And is it amazing that they can always produce? There's always, there's always a menu available some way, somehow, in a drawer somewhere. Um, I'm, I'm very much with you, but uh, I just I said, of course, we know that the pandemic in many ways saved the QR code. It was sort of the great sort of resurrection uh, for this communication coding and, and device. Uh, and well, as my column sort of says today, I just I hate companies that hide behind the notion that, well, you know, we have QR codes, not just for sanitary reasons, but of course, it's good for the environment. And I'm always thinking, well, I have to read this off my device. My device needs to be charged. The cloud, of course, needs to be powered up. Uh, obviously, this QR code is obviously then commu- you know is obviously communicating with a variety of other devices. So I sort of like think about what is sort of the the power generation that has to go on with every single person that has to, of course, look at the code, download the menu. Are trees really that much better off? It's a nice, serious point to make, but also I'm not entirely sure that our eyes were designed to be able to read such small print. Well, that as well, and not to mention, I think just from an aesthetic point of view, having this sort of, you know, blotch of blocks all over the place now, I think there's a bit of visual pollution as well. Um, So let's talk about something else that has has rattled your chain this week. How was your flight to Athens, Tyler? (laughs) My flight to Athens was, um, was interesting. We were flying out of Zurich on, on Friday evening, and it was one of those moments where there was just, we all know that sort of the rattled passenger, maybe they're apprehensive about flying, maybe they were stressed out about making their connection. But this particular gentleman was yelling at his family all the way down the ramp, um, had caused a bit of a scene at the boarding gate, was yelling at the staff, and then it was a whole scene on board. One family member got downgraded. But it was sort of a massive, it was a massive problem in the flight by 30 minutes. We missed our slot. And I was sort of just wondering, you know, how can it be that you would let a disruptive passenger on board like this? Well, sure enough, by the time we landed in Athens, we were 
We didn't go to a normal gate. The stairs came to the aircraft, and the blue flashing lights are waiting for him. Big, burly, almost SWAT team-style Greek cops get on board. He's told off. He's not going to move. You can imagine how it all goes. I mean, frankly, I'd do that for the, the kind of like the Richard Scarry scene that you've just described of a fully functioning and exciting airport, and not to mention the, the, the burly Athenian security guards. And can I bring in my, my guests? Charles, any, any fun and games happen to you on planes? Well, you know, I'm of two minds of this, and you, you very much have to sort of support the democratization of travel, but it's sort of built on the false premise that everybody behaves very well when they get onto an airplane, and that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, you know, you want to think that travel expands our horizons and um, is, is educational and enriches all of us, but I think in many cases it makes us extremely grumpy and unpleasant. It does. Tyler, does it make you grumpy and unpleasant, or, or, you, or, you, or you sweetness itself on, on, <laughs> on your plane? I'm generally sweet because I appreciate sort of the, the situation that, of course, crews have. And I think this is the other issue, which was, you know, there was, I don't know, of course, it's an Airbus of, you know, probably five flight attendants on board. And here's sort of the fact that they were, they were obviously all quite new to the business. And, you know, we can't forget the fact that we've been through, well, it's not just the pandemic, but two plus years of, of course, pensioning all kinds of very seasoned flight attendants off at airlines around the world. So my other point was, of course, this crew is trying to, you know, look up on their iPads, how do we just you know, deal with the disruptive idiot? It's, well, maybe there are some entries of how to do it, but I thought, actually, if you had probably someone with 20, 25 years of real life experience under their belt, and had sort of been through this before, they would have known how to dealt with, deal with this. And, um, and now we're sort of left with, of course, a lot of very inexperienced people. And, and we know that life experience is just that. You can't learn it off of a backlit screen. Nor can you actually train it into people at the speed that they need to get people back into the hospitality industry. It's attracting people back in, but training people takes time. It does. And, and I think that this is what COOs, CFOs, CEOs forget. That they think, okay, we can bring in thousands of people a month, but there is something about delivering service. And of course, I think we've downgraded the dignity around the hospitality business in general. And of course, that raises in question marks, do I, do I want to be in this business where I'd be valued by the brand I'm working for? And I think a lot of companies are coming to that answer a little bit late. Uh, nevertheless, I think hopefully the message is through and things will start to improve. Tell us what you're doing in Athens for the rest of the weekend, Tyler. Well, you're going to hear very shortly when I turn a corner here that there is a uh, the Iron Man is on here in Vuliamani. Uh, I'm not here to cover it or partake. Uh, this is uh, this is purely a bit of uh, end of summer fun because, of course, we have a rather sort of epic schedule coming up. We have our conference in Dallas. A lot of us will be heading out to the states for that quite soon. And as you know, Emma, it's just a very, very busy travel autumn uh, right now. Of course, <laughs> lots of things we want to shore up for next year. Not to mention, uh, of course, we, uh, we have you know, a few events, not to mention the Portugal book that has just come out, uh, so that will also demand a bit of a book tour. So for our listeners in Portugal, we'll be heading to Lisbon quite soon. Tyler, I shall let you get on with your Ironman warm-up. Thank you so much for joining us on Thanks, the line Emma. from Athens. That was our editorial director. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joining me in the studio, the political journalist and author Terry Diazny and Charles Hacker, senior partner at Control Risks. Well, what a weekend. Are we all have we have we all emerged from underneath Liz Truss's table? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. It's, yeah, we're in the strange. Yeah, I mean, who knows what, what world we'll be in by, by this time next week? Well, uh, who knows? Know what, what world we're in at the who moment. Who the Prime Minister will be, you know, that's the joke everyone's doing, isn't yeah. it? That, you know, normally if you've got concussed or something, people ask you, you know, who the Prime Minister is. And <laughs> now it's a question that, you know, you're fairly, you know, it's fairly normal not to be able to answer. I know. I was, we were sort of watching Liz Trust depart on, on whenever it was Thursday and I, and, uh, I sort of asked my mum, who's sort of 85 and staying with us at the moment, and I said, who do you think is going to be the next Prime Minister? And she just said, Father Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> She's absolutely right. She's not, I mean, he'd probably do a decent job of organising stuff, frankly. 
frankly, we need to get our uh, our, our, our lovely our lovely man from River Niemi to come down and sort of sort out Number Ten <laughs> Downing Street. Um, he comes down and sorts out the Monocle Christmas Market. So I'm sure he could do. You know, he's he's in per- his perfect prime position. Terry, you had the weird and unenviable but fascinating job of actually being in the wrong country when the big story <laughs> broke. Yes, which, which is never never really a good thing for for a journalist to be in the wrong country. Uh, but it, 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 at the same time, but it was it was very strange. Uh, sort of sitting in a in a hotel room in New York and trying to you know obviously through through the means of Twitter or whatever. And constantly, my family were going, "Will you stop telling me the latest breaking news alert that the Home Secretary has just resigned? You know, we're just having breakfast. <laughs> stop it now." I sort of forgotten uh, about Suella Braverman. Yeah, she exactly. A... It's like you know, oh, the Home Secretary. You know, everyone's like, "Stop it, stop it." Um, but yes, watching uh, other countries try to make sense of of what is going on in in British politics uh, was was very strange. You know, people trying to explain what on earth had happened and why. Charles, one of your one of your sort of like jobs is to work out what the other world thinks of the United Kingdom. At the more this week it was. What what was the message? What were the messages that you were getting apart from sort of you know wondering whether people's jaws could drop any further? So I'm in the exact opposite position that that Terry was in. So I'm I'm well, I'm a dual citizen, US UK, but I'm you know from the US and here in the UK and was getting bombarded by text messages all along really asking for sort of minute by minute, blow by blow descriptions of what's happening, why it's happening, what it means, what's going to happen next. And and of course, the looming question underneath all of it, as things began to unfold is what's the likelihood that Boris Johnson is going to return to number 10? And, and friends and family of mine outside the UK are riveted by what's happening but they but you know underneath all of this is this this broader question of what has happened to that country what has happened to this country um this beacon of stability this predictable stable transparent democracy seems to have we hope temporarily taken leave of its senses and has the rest of the world scratching its head it is strange isn't it and actually a lot of the conversations that have been happening here in London have been a more broader question that's being asked about how, not just how we are seen in the world, but actually how the United Kingdom functions now. Uh, and, and talking to a friend of mine yesterday, they were saying we are now lacking in kindness. We are lacking in efficiency. Um, Tyler was mentioning QR codes, but there's so many problems with the idea of actually, you know having to ring someone and try to get through to a business nowadays. And I wonder if whether that's global or I wonder whether there is something particularly British and, and in terms of the fact that one feels that the wheels are coming off just a little bit. Or am I just getting old and, and incapable of handling modern life? Terry, what are your thoughts? Um, I think, you know, normally we in Britain, we kind of pride ourselves on the, the system works smoothly. And, you know, I suppose if you, you would say, well, we've shown that we're kind of infinitely flexible and adaptable, uh, particularly when you say, well, there are rules as to how things work. You know, there are rules for electing a new prime minister, rules for electing a leader. Those can be completely changed in a matter in a matter of minutes, which is a strange thing. And I suppose, you know, a few weeks ago, we saw the things that Britain is still good at. And with, with the Queen's funeral, actually, it was uh, we are really good at organising a big show. We are good at the sort of stage management of a massive event and making things look amazing. And there are still bits of Britain that function like that. If you look at, you know, how the armed forces did that, how the civil service managed to organise all of these kinds of things. And and those still exist, but it's just the sort of political chaos at the top or in, in the Conservative Party in particular, uh, which, you know, which isn't functioning very well. Um, but I hope, hopefully, you know, we will we will learn how to to make the rest of it work again. Well, I think Emma, what you're noticing and 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 the sense that you're getting is is about institutions, whether they're social institutions or political institutions or economic institutions, and and all of those, particularly in the democratic world, are under enormous pressure. Um, you know what's happening. Your experience in the shops is is under pressure economically, um, and and the use of QR codes instead of human beings is a symptom of that. Not just the pandemic, because let's not forget that that also eliminates headcount. Um, it doesn't only just eliminate paper menus; it helps eliminate headcount. Um, what we're experiencing, and I mean, I think Terry, Terry is absolutely right in pointing out the resurgence of these institutions around moments like the Queen's funeral and this reminder that there are certain institutions that are incredibly resilient and durable. Um, but you know, moments later, 
they're under attack again um, politically. And and this is a country that is known globally for the strength of its political, social, and economic institutions. And they're all sweating like never before. And we're all sweating because it looks like Boris Johnson might be making a comeback. Now, that was a surprise headline I didn't expect to wake up to on Friday morning, which is like, Boris is back. And I just thought, of course he's back, because Boris is really good at surprising us. We don't we always expect to be surprised by Boris Johnson, but the nature of the surprise is always what surprises us. And the fact that he was flying back in a quite a sort of shambolic physical state. Apologies, Mr. Johnson, if you're listening, but please do sharpen <laughs> up when you're getting off the plane. Um, I mean, actually, let's just talk about that. Talk when about you travel plane on the plane, plane, plane as we've, we've talked. We've talked in the past several times, and, and our editorial director is a is a is a keen keen observer of uh, the amount of kind of stretch wear that's used on aircraft. Um, when you're so, well, and I've always said I want to want to know why people dress as babies when they go on planes now. Um, but what is it about the fact that we no longer smarten up when we go on an aircraft? Apart from the fact that it isn't very comfortable to wear a pair of tight jeans for for eight or nine hours. I, uh, you know, I I want to sort of rage a little bit about this, but I think that part of what <laughs> driving my comments on this is just the jealousy and that is that you know stretch wear has to stretch a bit too much when I put it on and so it's not the most flattering thing in the world Charles you're doing wear. yourself a disservice here um, I'm sure I'm, you look magnificent uh, that's very kind of you I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm all in favor of being as comfortable as possible when you're sitting in a tin can flying through the air but you're not alone you're in the company of other individuals and in the very close company of other individuals. And I think some of the ways that you sort of dress and behave and comport yourself in close company uh, matters and is important. And, and, and the way Boris Johnson looked on his economy class flight, it should be noted, back from the Dominican Republic was a bit a bit below standards. Mm. Third holiday in how many months? Well, that's the thing. So, the, you know, we talk about Boris Johnson coming back. He is literally physically coming back from holiday. And he says here, this is a matter of national priority and it's in the national interest that I return to the political scene. He has been physically absent from the political scene for a number of weeks on. I don't know how many holidays it's been. It's been one long holiday since he resigned and the nation remains in crisis and the national interest remains in the balance. And he was on the beach. Do you think he's going to be the next Prime Minister, Terry? Oh, I hate it. In these predictions, <laughs> the last few years I've been, you know, fairly consistently wrong. I I don't think he will be. I mean, I've, you know, I could be completely wrong by, I've in fact, by this time tomorrow, by tomorrow evening, I could be completely wrong. Um, I think, you know, he's there, his camp is kind of claiming that he's got this 100 MPs who need to endorse him, but they are claiming it a bit too uh, sort of vociferously and it doesn't quite match with the numbers that they have. Uh, there has been this, what is at the moment still a fairly mysterious meeting, supposedly between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak last night to apparently try to thrash out some kind of a deal. But I think it's slightly shifting in Sunak's favour as we speak, you know, at sort of nine o'clock London time this morning in that quite a few people like Kemi Badenoch, former leadership contender, people like Steve Baker, who was the leader of the, the ERG, so the sort of the big Eurosceptic lobby group, even Lord Frost, uh, Boris Johnson's former Brexit negotiator saying that they don't think uh, the time is right for Boris Johnson. And so quite a few people saying, no, they don't want him to come back, not least because he's still facing this investigation about whether he misled Parliament that could actually lead to him being suspended from the House of Commons. I mean, basically, you know, you can't have a, a prime minister being suspended from the House of Commons and, and possibly losing their seat. So there's, there's still a lot of big question marks o over Boris Johnson. And the the newspaper's narrative this weekend is, is you know, looking at the Sunday Times, is the tide going out on Boris Johnson's comeback? So there's already the talk that Boris would actually endorse Rishi Sunak to be the next um, next prime minister. And there would be some rapprochement. Apparently, the two men spoke to each other yesterday um, at, after nine o'clock. Uh, Boris Johnson was holed up in Millbank and Rishi Sunak was in Parliament. Um, there's also the the fact there was a really good article in the Telegraph yesterday, which said that actually Boris, if Boris stands a chance of losing this, and he has a go and he loses, and that's Boris gone. That he can't have a comeback from this one. Although the the, the prospects of glory of coming back after just six weeks away is is quite tantalising and, and delicious for Mr Johnson. One piece of advice for Mr Johnson were he to be listening or to be reading the Telegraph was, bide your time. Let Rishi Sunak come into power, try and do what he can, fix, try and fix the unfixable, fail, get chucked out, get the, the, the Labour government in, they have a go, they've got a poison chalice as well, and then guess what, we've got Boris the ultimate comeback kid in about two, three, four years down the line. 
watching this and, and, and observing how this is unfolding requires a neck brace. <laughs> um, because and a, a, gin. A, a, a neck brace and gin, but you know both at the exact same time. Um, Terry's absolutely right. Sort of handicapping this race by reading the papers and and, and following social media um, is is a dizzy making um, enterprise. And I think you're right. Um, it doesn't look like Boris is – I think that he probably should bide his time in this case. Um, the interesting thing is that the, 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 this sort of euphoria around his return um, and the reason why this initially seemed like it would be a shoe in and that he would win hands down is it was intended initially for this vote to go to conservative party members and that they overwhelmingly want to see Boris Johnson back in number 10. I think what's interesting now is that the parliamentary party wants to do whatever it can to prevent the ballot from going to the conservative party membership, the same one that delivered us Liz Truss. And so somebody has to emerge as the sole winner of the parliamentary preference balloting. Um, and they are going to want to narrow that down as quickly as possible. Um, and for Boris to sort of stick his neck out and have it fail, as you suggest, um, is probably too significant a political setback for him to bounce back from. I think the, from, for Boris Johnson, the the problem with that sort of theory that you set out, sit out, sit it out, wait it out, come back is that it involves a long slog and, you know, basically he would have to come back as leader of the opposition. And for Boris Johnson, that is not something he wants to do. It is boring. It is hard work. You don't get any of the glory. You know, those are all things. I mean, I noticed this headline here from Fraser Nelson, the editor of The Spectator. Is the new Boris really any different? And I think that is one of those classic, you know, questions to which the answer is no. Um, You know, he he doesn't want to, you know, we saw that when he was prime minister. You know, putting in a long, slow slog to bring the Conservatives back from an election defeat is not something he wants to do. And I think if you're him and he's, what you know, sort of 58 years old, you know, you're going to think, you know, I, I, he, he wants the glory and he wants to come back and he wants to go off and make money and, and do his speeches again. Whether he wants to do the, the hard yards if he doesn't get it this time, I think is a big question. You know, he's got books that are years overdue to write that are supposed to make him money. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that he's in it for that long haul. It's, it's a strange state of affairs that we were, you know, we're monocle on Sunday and we don't have a prime minister here in the United Kingdom, but we're still talking about Boris Johnson again. And I'm wondering how we got here. And as I was examining that, I thought, this is like Berlusconi. That Berlusconi keeps coming back time after time after time after time. And and you just sit in a studio scratching your head going, hang on, I thought we'd dealt with this. Um, it has Boris been... Johnson is what? I mean, sorry, Berlusconi is, I think, what, 86? <laughs> the prospect yes, of still being talking about Boris Johnson in another 30 years' time. You know, if, there's if, still if some spared. road in this. There's <laughs> still some road. Um, Chuck, you wanted to talk about the, the fact that Italy has... Uh, yes. <laughs> What's going on in Italy now? Well, well the, the, there's an, a couple of really interesting pieces in the weekend FT, Emma, and... and they point to exactly what what you were discussing, and that is that somebody like Silvio Berlusconi is a perennial in Italian politics, and part of that is because as an individual, he needs the limelight, and he needs to be at the center of political affairs in Italy. And he hasn't been recently until he joined the coalition with Giorgia Maloney, that is now, um, who is now Italy's first female and first you know extreme right wing prime minister. And but Berlusconi is not satisfied with being the junior partner in this coalition. So he's taken to the airwaves and people have been leaking on his behalf. And he appears to already be undermining Maloney and her authority as new prime minister and the coalition, um, which made uh, Maloney basically publicly tell him to shut his mouth, which was quite unusual in Italian politics. Um, and what he's done is is he who, you know, Berlusconi is one of Putin's best friends politically and personally. And Maloney went to some length at the beginning of her premiership to express strong Italian support for Ukraine. And Berlusconi took a swipe at that. Um, She expressed strong support for the European Union. Berlusconi took a swipe at that. Uh, And so here is this person who is once again trying to insert himself into the limelight of Italian politics when he's really not in the position to do that. And we have... But we have that sort of thing that perhaps we've had with Boris, which is that single unifying figure. At least everybody has an opinion and everybody recognises him. And when you are in 
a period of of, un, of unsta- instability than to have one strong voice. Everybody, li- everybody listens. I guess this is a byproduct of of how personality driven politics has become. Um, people used to talk about these strange things called policies. Um, people <laughs> used to talk about business, about the economy, about international relations, and they still do, I suppose, but they do this as individuals. Um, and, and this is a little bit of the merging, I suppose, of the political world and the world of entertainment, um, which is the source of, of Silvio Berlusconi's massive wealth, um, and, and also the blurring of the lines between celebrity and, and politics in the United States. And, and I suppose that that shift the balance away from people who represent parties and people who represent ideas to people who represent nothing other than themselves. What are your thoughts on the fact that... Uh, it it reminds me of a, a phrase my children were using the other day, and it, I think it's just how this is all fed into the culture. They, was, they were talking about some somebody we know. It's like, oh, well, yeah, they're a, they're a recurring minor character in our story arc. <laughs> so they were talking about real life as though it was some kind of Netflix drama. Um, and I think that's, that's partly what it is. You know, we... we we like the, the familiarity of sort of the, the wacky character who turns up. I mean, in this FT article here, uh, they're talking about Berlusconi as being uh, like an embarrassing uncle out of step with the times. And there is that tension between, on the one hand, I mean, if you look at Italian politics, you know, people say we want sort of a stable, managerial, sensible government. And that was what Mario Draghi was supposed to be. He was supposed to be the person who came in, who understood the markets, who sort of calmed everything down. And yes, he did try to do that. But then it wasn't able to last because, you know, people kind of, there was this urge for the drama, an urge for the sort of people who promise solutions that, that will work. And then you get, you know, you know, the embarrassing uncle turns up and it's kind of an interesting episode of the series. And maybe that's slightly <laughs> what we, we get with Boris Johnson. You just feel, you know, are we all minor characters in his story arc or is it is it the other way around? Are we now, well, the sort of the, the duller ones of us who quite like a good night's sleep, are any of us actually craving a more prosaic and less charming and less dramatic kind of politics or are we quite enjoying this uh i think the thing that i would like to get back to is you know people also used to talk about politicians speaking human and i would actually like somebody who just communicates not in an exaggerated boris johnson hello chaps here we all are isn't this jolly and not in a robotic liz truss you know, Putin's appalling war in Ukraine, that is a disgrace. This kind of somebody who can just say, look, we're going through difficult time. You know, a bit of a a bit of a Tony Blair, if you like. I'm already doing the Tony Blair hand gestures. You, are. you know. Let's try to calm things down. Someone who can just communicate in a fairly measured manner, but while also being engaging enough that we'll listen. Is That's that interesting, because you're now talking about the you were going back to the idea of personality politics, that actually it's the communication which is the thing that st- seals the deal in so many areas, isn't it, Charles? Well, I mean, I think we are enjoying this, but I think we're enjoying it at our peril, because I think that we're at risk of creating a vicious cycle where we are feeding the sorts of traits in politicians and how they communicate that are actually damaging to the body politic. And, and I think that we would like to have politics be boring again, although more people than ever now are engaged in politics and talking about politics. I think we'd like to have them boring again. Um, I think that's what the markets are waiting on is is for a sort of calm and and sort of rational and, and sort of empirical look at, at how countries are run because that reflects on how nations finance themselves and their viability going forward. And and yeah, Terry's right. There has to be some sort of middle ground that is stable and charismatic, but not flippant. Okay. Well, if you find someone who's like that, let me know. Who have we found? And there's an interesting thing that Keir Starmer said, that the Labour leader a couple of weeks ago on the Today programme. He is constantly, consistently accused of being wooden, you know, dull, much less than the sum of his parts. And then he went on a, a news, news programme a few weeks ago and said, right, OK, if I came in and said I've been bungee jumping, would that make me a better prime minister? Yeah, I thought that was a really great answer, actually. I thought what it showed is a bit more confidence in Keir Starmer's part to be able to sort of completely reject the premise of a question. And say, no, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be what you want me to. I'm not going to answer, you know, answer the question that you want me to answer just because mm. it's the right thing to say. And I thought that was actually a sign of, of strength in his part. You frame the questions, I'll frame the answers. Right, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm joined in the studio by Charles Hecker and Terry Stiesny. But let us head to Istanbul now. We're going to Turkey for a roundup of stories 
making news there. I'm delighted to say Hannah Lucinda Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, is enjoying, hopefully there's some sun with you, Hannah. We've already told that there's some Athenian sun. I'm assuming that Istanbul is bathed in the, in, in the good stuff today. Funny enough, it is. I mean, it's not particularly warm. The heating was turned on in my building uh, on Friday. But uh, yeah, it's, it's gloriously sunny here. So the one surprising thing is that people are actually turning their heating on. Here in the United Kingdom, we're all buying thermal curtains. Well, yeah, I mean, I have to say there's a kind of different um, approach, I think, to energy saving here in Turkey. I mean, partly because energy is a lot cheaper here, although bills are soaring. But um, I, I was really amazed when I moved into the apartments. I mean, now that they still have this system where you don't actually have control over your own heating in my building. It's either it's turned on in October and turned off kind of end of April, beginning of May. So it's perhaps not the most efficient system at least it's reliable. Um, let's talk about what's happening yeah. in where you are. What's the news? So um, this week I've been in a town in the Black Sea region called Amastra. Now, uh, just over a week ago on the 14th of October, a Friday night, uh, there was an explosion in a mine in Amastra. Uh, 41 people unfortunately died so I went there this week to meet some of the families um, to meet union representatives um, and to find out why these kind of accidents keep happening in Turkey. If you look at the rate of uh, mining accidents in this country it's far above anything you find in Western Europe. Um, just to give you an idea, between 2019 and 2021, uh, there were five mining deaths in Germany, 189 in Turkey. Um, now, you know, clearly uh, there are reasons for that. There, This was a state-owned mine. Um, investigations have started. Uh, the initial information suggests that um, it was a methane buildup, which then ignited. But, you know, people are very, very angry. There was another mining disaster back in 2014 in a town called Summer. 301 miners killed in that accident. Um, and it does seem that, you know, not enough has changed. Um, you know, these kind of accidents are still happening. Um, and, you know, on top of that, this has also become kind of a bit of a lightning rod for um, dissatisfaction at the government of President Erdogan, who's facing elections next year. Um, you know, people saying, why is this still happening? Why is nothing changing? Why do lives appear to be you know, so cheap in, in, this, in this sector? And there was this astonishing uh, comment by Erdogan last week, wasn't he, that he connected the deaths of these what, 41 miners to destiny and saying that these accidents will always happen. Yeah, so, I mean, Erdogan ahead of these elections has kind of shifted into campaigning mode and it's really telling that he immediately kind of dropped his plans for the day, flew with a couple of his ministers to this town, together with those ministers, did the round of all the funerals, uh, you know, they were pictured, you know, praying at all the graves, but then gave this quite extraordinary speech in which he said, yeah, we're a people who believe in fate. Now, you know, clearly, Turkey culturally is very different to the UK. It's a far more kind of, um, you know, religion is far more important to this society. And I, you know, I did kind of go and ask a lot of Turkish people, you know, am I just misunderstanding this as, you know, somebody who's not Turkish? And the answer was, well, no, it's, it's a particularly kind of strange and perhaps heartless thing to say at a funeral. You know, I have to, I did watch that speech and, you know, Erdogan was clearly, you know, moved. He did look very upset, but you know, understandably, he's attracted a huge amount of criticism for that. Um, and, you know, people within the opposition and opposition newspapers saying, well, you know, when he goes with these ministers and kind of goes round to these funerals, is this just a kind of, you know, campaigning stunt? Does it, when he says things like this, you know, it does make you question how genuine, uh, you know, those actions are. And how do you think this will play out politically? Well, here's the thing. I mean, when the Somar disaster happened back in 2014, you know, it, it sparked protests not just in Somar, but across Turkey. But that was a different era. There have been some small-scale protests in Ankara and Istanbul about this latest disaster. Um, but just 24 hours before that blast happened, a new law was passed here in Turkey, Media Disinformation Act. It basically criminalises criminalizes the sharing of what is deemed as fake news. Now, what is fake is decided by regulators in courts that are dominated by Erdogan loyalists. So you can imagine that 
a lot of independent journalists and commentators are you know, really concerned that this is going to be another chill on uh, freedom of speech in Turkey, which is already not in a great place. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's just striking to see how different the kind of public responses now eight years on people are really really scared of certainly of going out into the streets um but even of kind of making comments on social media and you know i think you know there has been criticism of erdogan and his government for this clearly there is going to be an investigation uh, it's probably going to come up with some really uncomfortable findings for for the state company that operates this mine but i think you know the erdogan and, and his government have managed to kind of successfully blunt perhaps the the effects of events like these through uh you know court cases against opposition figures through new new laws like this media disinformation law which really really are chilling freedom of speech um tell us a little bit about the fact that there seems to be an influx of russians into turkey in the last few weeks yeah, well, this is um, this is something that's been going on since you know late February, early March, when Putin's invasion of Ukraine started. We saw back in uh, late February the first kind of wave of Russians arriving in Istanbul, and they were mostly you know dissidents. There were a lot of journalists, um, you know, independent journalists, both foreign and Russian, coming into Turkey at that time. But with the mobilisation bill of last month. Um, there's a new influx and now it's, you know, also people who are not particularly even, you know, active opponents of Putin, but just do not want to be dragged into this war. And, you know, at this point in, in my neighbourhood in Istanbul and in a lot of others, you know, it's a really visible presence. You hear Russian being spoken on the streets all the time, but also, you know, also bringing with them a kind of you know, new wave of business and culture. Um, just in my neighbourhood, there is now a Russian restaurant been opened by an older Russian lady serving kind of, you know, Russian home food. And also uh, a bookshop opened by a couple from St. Petersburg. They are active opponents of Putin. They were saying that actually, you know, it had become almost unfeasible for them to carry on operating their bookshop because any book which was written by an LGBT author or featured photographs from an LGBT photographer was deemed as illegal and they were coming under increasing pressure. They had to leave all their stock behind in St. Petersburg, but they've come to Istanbul, found a small unit to rent and have kind of reopened their business here. So, you know, well, I think, you know, and this happened also in, in late February, there are some people who will go back or maybe move on to other places. I think, you know, this is a this is a wave of in, inward migration, which is really going to kind of change and shape the, the culture of Istanbul for a long time to come. There's that interesting uh, scenario, isn't it, that you, you see people who are fleeing, obviously, at a terrible regime in Russia. But that that reminder when you have a Russian presence and that Russian voice is that, oh, my goodness, you know, that what Russia is doing to the likes of Ukraine is is catastrophic. So how welcome are these Russians feeling? I think, I, I mean, interestingly, you know, I, I was talking with um, with the lady who's running the bookshop and she was just full of praise for, um, you know, Turkey and Turks and the welcome that they've had. And, you know, it's quite strikingly different, actually, to the kind of rhetoric that's going around at the moment about Syrian and Afghan refugees. <clears throat> now, there are cultural reasons for that, historical reasons for it. Um, but generally, you know, I think, you know, Turks are welcoming to Russians. It's partly because, um, you know, there's always been... In, um, you know, a lot of Russian tourism, especially in places like Antalya. Um, you know, obviously, geographically, they're very close countries. So it's quite warm feelings towards both Russians and Ukrainians, actually. But also the fact that, you know, Turkey does not have the same kind of approach, either politically or socially, um, to Russia in this war. I mean, overwhelmingly, people are sympathetic to Ukraine, of course. But also opinion polls show when um, people are asked, you know, whose fault is this conflict? Quite a lot of people put some of the blame at NATO's door as well, even though Turkey is a NATO member. Um, so you don't have the same kind of, um, you know, discussions and debates that you're having in Europe at the moment of, you know, should Russian tourists still be allowed to come here? Should we stop visas for Russians? These just aren't debates at all here in Turkey. Hannah Lucinda Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. The time here in London is 9.39. Stay with us. My guests, Charles Hecker and Terry Stiasny, will be talking about some more stories in the paper in just a moment. 
Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas, on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels, from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. in Zurich, 9.40 in London, which is where we are today for Monocle on Sunday. I'm Emma Nelson. Great to have your company and great to have Charles Hacker and Terry Stiasny back in the studio. So we've sort of like wrung every last drop out of the Tory mess. We've established that Berlusconi is a gift that keeps on giving. Um, But there was something that you you wanted to mention just then, Charles, listening to Hannah in in Istanbul and this difficult... Mm -hmm relationship that um, the Turks, that the Turkey has with Russia. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating balance that they're striking, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, I thought Hannah Lucinda's reporting on, on what's happening in the transformation of Istanbul um, by Russian and Ukrainian emigres is, is interesting and, and, and apt. And it's happening in, in, in Turkey. Um, and it's happening all over sort of Russia's southern neighbors. Um, there have been similar influxes into Yerevan in Armenia, Tbilisi in Georgia, Almaty in Kazakhstan, and, and also in Dubai, if you can afford it. And, and in each of these cities, the presence of Ukrainian refugees and Russian emigres and also Russian refugees, you could say, um, has been transformational. Um, Turkey is... You know, you couldn't invent Turkey if you wanted to from a geopolitical perspective in the way that it plays Russia and Ukraine, the way it plays the East against the West, the way as a NATO member, it is still sort of playing NATO and and stalling the accession of Sweden and Finland into the organization, Um, the way it's bought American military hardware and Russian military hardware. some of this is is Erdogan being crafty. Some of this is geography, and some of this is just opportunism. Um, but it, you know, it's it's endlessly fascinating um, how that country works, how that city works, and how it always seems to be at geopolitical crossroads. Well, it's physically as a as a, yeah. as a geographical crossroads as well. But the the idea of my of, of you know, a country taking in both Russian and Ukrainian migrants is quite astonishing, isn't it? Um, there was an OECD report that came out in or, earlier this month, which um, that talked about the fact that the that, that countries actually have managed to um, welcome and incorporate the influx of Ukrainian refugees quite successfully. Some some more successful than others, because. The majority of them are, of course, women and children. They are not men of working age. But the majority of these women are professionals, that they are university educated. They are just like you and I sitting around this table, but they find themselves in in other places. And yet there has been space found for them. I mean, one personal story is that my mum has taken in a Ukrainian cleaner. And the but the, the woman when in Kiev, Kiev is, is, uh, runs a furniture shop. And yet she's she's managed to get herself in and the children now go to school and life is getting more settled for them. And, you, and there is an economic and social place. That's right. So what we saw in the first wave of refugees from the conflict, particularly in Ukraine's neighboring countries like Poland, um, was an efficient warm and open welcome and, you know, a gesture from the European Union of I think it was up to three years of residency, the ability to live and work without an enormous amount of sort of paperwork being taken care of. And and there was a wide open welcome. Um, these, you know, numbers of emigres and refugees come in waves. Um, part of that wave, that initial wave reversed. 
uh, when people felt that it was safe enough to go back into Ukraine. That may be changing. We may see um, at least domestic uh, migration changing in Ukraine or perhaps again another wave of refugees leaving for neighboring countries in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and the stories have been amazing about people who have completely under duress reinvented themselves and, and learned how to survive. Terry, what else have you spotted in the papers today? Um, and well, there's some quite interesting coverage. Obviously, you know, mostly the British papers, it's all been overridden by the politics as we're talking about. But there's some quite interesting analysis, uh, say, in the Sunday Times this morning talking about um, Ukraine. And uh, it was an interesting article by Michael Clark, who's the professor of war studies at, at King's College, London. Um, and his, the headline here is history tells us that Putin's terror tactics in Ukraine will fail. And, and one of the things he's looking at is particularly uh, sort of the military uh, difficulties for Putin um, and is, is saying that you know Putin will not lose gracefully and looking at how Russia's military tactics have, have been trying to change, particularly in the face of, uh, you know, U um, Ukraine's bombing of something like the Kerch Bridge and uh, now you're trying to use drone attacks. And essentially, he's really arguing that Russia is actually running out of uh, the kind of bigger missiles and that Russia is trying to have to buy in cheaper um, cheaper armaments from, from elsewhere, from Iran, from, else, from elsewhere in the world, and that how this is trying kind of change the, the military tactics uh, on the ground, but, you know, ultimately suggesting that this will be a very difficult way for, for Putin to try to, to, to carry on. Um, and it's obviously we don't know a lot of what is going on, uh, particularly in places like Kherson, and, we, you know, trying to hear limited amounts of, of information coming out from, from on the ground and just the, you know, the remarkable uh, strength and, def and defiance of, of Ukraine and what this will ultimately mean for, for Russia. And it's seen a different kind of assault this week, hasn't it, Charles, that we've seen the infrastructure that powers the country being um, targeted incredibly brutally. It, was, it came out in the last 12 hours that, uh, that uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky said that there has been a renewed vicious attack on, on power stations right across the country. Um, it is that tactic, isn't it, that now that the, med the, the, the military side of things isn't going to plan, let's say it hasn't been going to plan for the Russians since it started, um, but the fact now is that having been unable to, to break the Ukrainian military, they're now trying to break the Ukrainian people. That's right. And and as a, as a result of being unable to put boots on the ground in Ukraine in the way that, that, that they wanted to, uh, there has been a change in strategy. There has been a change in tactics. And that started about 10 days ago with the mass bombing of civilian infrastructure uh, targeting the electricity grid. And also there's been the mining of a dam recently in the road that goes across um, a, a bridge that, that makes a, a hydroelectric uh, dam. And so um, this intensified again. Um, and um, Zelensky has said something like 30% of the country's electricity infrastructure is now inoperable. Some of that is being repaired as quickly as possible. Some of that will be extremely difficult to repair, especially as winter sets in. So um, it is trying now to break the ability to live from day to day that seems to be this new shift in strategy. Although um, Terry in, in the analysis that she's extracted is, is absolutely right. And that is that Russia's running out of these long-term, long-range long missiles that they've been using to sort of carpet bomb the infrastructure. And I suppose it's only a matter of time before they'll have to resort to some other turn in strategy. Um, let's move finally to uh, the death of Dietrich Marteschitz, a man that we might not have heard of until his death was announced this morning. Um, he was the founder of Red Bull um, and arguably, Terry, half Austrian, so this is why I'm chucking this in your direction. <laughs> yeah. He was the man who sort of made a fortune out of a fizzy drink without actually concentrating on the fizzy drink. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting story and a really uh, interesting life, though we, you know, sort of slightly, uh, we don't know an awful lot about some of his, his private life because he, he kept it sort of to himself. But yes, Dietrich Mateschitz was, you know, somebody who had been working in uh, marketing in a, a sort of company, I think, selling toothpaste, it says here in, in one of his 
obituaries, and he went on a trip to Thailand, found this amazing concoction of sort of caffeine and sugar, uh, and and turned it into, gave it uh, a new name, called it Red Bull, um, and made an absolute fortune out of it. But then, as you say, turned it into something completely different. So turned it into, put the branding on a Formula One team, uh, came up with the slogan, Red Bull gives you wings, sort of applied this to every kind of extreme sport that you can think of, uh, started buying uh, football teams and, and so on that all had this kind of Red Bull um, branding on them. Uh, and so it made a fortune. He was, you know, became Austria's richest man. Uh, he's now died at the age of 78. Uh, and you know his his passing was marked by the Austrian Chancellor on, on Twitter this morning talking about it, uh, but it also uh, says that although he kind of kept his his private life very much out of out of the public domain, um, and this in Der Stander, this talking about him here, he perf- perfected message control before Austrian politicians <laughs> even knew what that was. Um, but also apparently contributed quite a lot. He would like build things in his in his local village where where he'd come from, uh, sort of invested in in the environment and you know there were lots of things that he sort of built in his in his local area rather than be a very public figure whereas his brand was obviously you know immensely well known around the world so one of the things that Deshtandard is is mentioning was the fact that Mataschitz um delivered around 405 million euros to the Austrian tax authorities in 2020 and that this was a company or a man who never used tax havens. I mean, the Deshtandard reports that there are a couple of trademark rights that might happen to be registered in the Cayman Islands. But but Charles, this is um, an interesting uh, corner that we now find ourselves in on Monocle on Sunday. I'm going to call it the Austrian tax corner because you found another story about Austrian an, an, an Austrian who likes to pay her taxes. That's right. Fairly prominently displayed in the weekend edition of the International New York Times is a story of an Austrian citizen who actually wants to pay as much tax as possible. The headline is, she's inheriting millions. She wants her wealth taxed away. And this is the story of Marlena Engelhorn, who grew up in Vienna and is the heiress to an absolutely colossal chemical fortune. Um, She has already inherited part of it. She stands to inherit more. And rather than engaging in traditional philanthropy where she sort of doles out money in largesse towards worthy causes, she wants the Austrian tax authorities to take as much of it as possible. And that's really quite unusual these days. Um, Perhaps what's more unusual is is that Miss Engelhorn is described as a young leftist millionaire. Uh, something for us all oh, to aspire um, to. Terry, oh, to be a young leftist millionaire. Well, it'd be, I think it's quite interesting given, you know, both of these two were talking about the Austrian examples because I think traditionally people uh, in Austria have been very sceptical, let's put it diplomatically, about what the state does with their money and a certain, you know, the idea that you would voluntarily pay more tax than you would absolutely have to uh, is quite is quite sort of slightly alien and I think it's interesting that someone is, is suggesting this and I don't know whether whether this would change things more generally or whether she's trying to set an example to people who aren't necessarily millionaires. So. And it is astonishing, actually, just going back to Herr Marteschitz, the amount of stuff that he owned. I mean, you touched on it briefly, but the influence that he had. I mean, um, there was a headline just uh, spotted a few moments ago that, it, that apparently only the Queen had more castles than him. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, whether that's true or not, I mean, it's 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 a good little tale, isn't it? That you can sort of quietly build up a kind of a, a sort of an infrastructure and and a, an investment and you know everything from restoring churches and forest land and all that kind of stuff that you can actually plough your money back into a local community and make it work and highly profitable. I, I, you know, reports are that the empire has just hoovered up a ton of um, hotels in the region and and, and stuff in Austria. Well, what this story tells us in the New York Times is there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And you can do it um, in the way of of, of sort of the grandee of the the Red Bull fortune has done. And and what this particular Viennese heiress prefers to do is she says she doesn't want to be a sort of capricious philanthropist and, and that she shouldn't unilaterally decide who gets her money and who doesn't. And what she's saying instead is that she has this incredible faith in government as the representative of elected officials, you know, apropos of our opening conversation on the topic, she has her confidence that the government will distribute the money that it collects off of her fortune efficiently and effectively and in a way that promotes equality. 
Maybe she should have had a chat with Cosi Kwarteng and Liz Truss about four weeks ago. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Charles Hacker and Terry Stiesny. Great to have you in the studio. Finally, let's recap on the last seven days, as if you didn't need it. Here's Andrew Muller with what we learned. We learned this week that the standard British pub quiz question concerning the UK's shortest serving Prime Minister has been rewritten, allowing the ghost of George Canning a rest at last from nearly two centuries of relentless summoning. At which point we're going to need a revolving door sound effect. For we learned that despite this assertion, made as recently as Wednesday... I am a fighter and not a quitter. Liz Truss is, in fact, a quitter. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. So we learned that we now await another Tory leadership contest. Which, we learned, will hopefully be shorter than the last epic reenactment of the closing scene of Reservoir Dogs, although if they could get it all bagged in time for us to write next week's monologue, that would be just dandy. Anyway. If we did learn anything else this week, and let's face it, we didn't, it is that one does not want to mess with the Guardian reading tofu-eating Wokarati, at which point we can fill in the backstory somewhat, and we will not be dignifying with the response any suggestion that we'd already written and recorded this bit before Trust threw the towel in, and are now furiously trying to edit our way back into some facsimile of contemporaneity. They don't even catch on. Just rewrite it. No, you shut up. So this was Home Secretary Suella Braverman on Tuesday, explaining why nothing was the fault of the people who have been in government for 12 years. It's the Labour Party. It's the Lib Dems. It's the Coalition of Chaos. It's the Guardian reading, to tofu-eating, wokarati, dare I say, the anti-growth coalition that we have to thank for the disruption that we are seeing on our roads today. Gone within 24 hours, she was scythed down in her prime by doubtless this same omnipotent cabal of sandal-shod vegan cyclists. However, we learned that this same all-powerful clique of soy milk slurping, ivory-towered dwelling bunny huggers was not done yet, with furtively manipulating a clearly helpless Conservative Party as further chaos was orchestrated, climaxing in the astonishing crescendo of Liz Truss's defenestration after 44 days in office, if rather few of them in charge. There was a whole thing with a House of Commons division which either was or wasn't a confidence vote, at which the Prime Minister, as she then was, forgot or didn't forget to vote for herself, the resignation or not of the Chief Whip and Deputy Chief Whip, allegations of actual argy-bargy and a quantity more of similar undignified brouhaha before Tory backbencher Charles Walker apprehended that here was one of those febrile moments at which MPs to whom nobody usually pays any attention have a crack at getting on the news and spoke for the nation. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. So, so you seem quietly... I'm, I'm, I'm livid. And, you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. More on all this next week, doubtless. But sticking with the subject of dubious democratic processes producing victories for candidates nobody really wanted in the first place and who were never likely in any event to do much beyond an amount of squawking and flapping, we learned that, once again, New Zealand's annual Bird of the Year contest has occasioned controversy. To their words, cause I like 
birds. Attentive listeners to these monologues like there are any other kind will recall that in last year's New Zealand Bird of the Year contest, there was a thing when it was won by a bat, which while it does have two wings, isn't a bird, just as the fact of having four legs does not make a table a zebra. In previous years, there have been influxes of barely explicable votes from Russia, honestly, has the FSB nothing better to do, and in a demonstration of the suave and subtle sense of humour for which Australians are justly renowned, an Australian-based attempt to skew the poll in favour of amusingly named waterfowl, the shag. This year, we learned, organisers of the poll have disqualified the fat, flightless, nocturnal parrot, the kakapo, also famous for a mating call which sounds like a party happening three houses away. We learned that the Kakapau, as a two-time winner, had been struck from the poll to give someone else a chance. And clinging even more grimly to the subject of competitions decided by voting for your choice from a field of gaudily plumed shriekers, we learned of a significant improvement to next year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's going to be shorter. We learned that Montenegro and North Macedonia had both withdrawn, citing budgetary concerns associated with having to help make up a shortfall in funding occasioned by Russia's ejection from the competition. We learned that, therefore, next year's iteration of the Pan-Continental Warbling Tournament will have to struggle on without the likes of this, with which North Macedonia crashed and burned at the semi-final stage this year. Mallet. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And my thanks to Andrew Muller and all of today's guests. Thank you so much, Charles Hacker and Terry Stiasny, for joining me in the programme. Good to have you. And that's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Thanks to our producer, Rhys James. Our studio manager was Sarah Nichol. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, enjoy the rest of your weekend and goodbye.